Hello everyone and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for listening to the last couple of shows and writing in as well, particularly about the Talent Scarcity in Luxembourg show. We had some wonderful comments on that show and I really appreciate you writing in and sharing your views, your experiences and your own research as well. As you can see, I have a full house for this week's show, which is Christmas weekend. So firstly, I wish you all listeners and viewers a, a truly wonderful, peaceful Christmas. I know sometimes Christmas, the run up to Christmas can be quite hectic for all sorts of reasons. And Christmas for some people, it's not an easy time as well. Um, so whatever the circumstances, I wish you all a wonderful, wonderful Christmas full of some relaxation and and good food where possible. Now, in the studio today, I have Dr. Patrick Peters. I've got Connie Reichling, also Dr. Connie Reichling. I've got Professor Dr. Serge Han and Andy Jenen. <laughs> so wonderful to have you all with me. We've got so many topics to cover, but I'm going to dive right in with you, Patrick. You're an orthopedic surgeon, but here not in that capacity, but in your capacity as an Arctic explorer the first Luxembourger to go to the North Pole, the first Luxembourger to do a, a full classic polar crossing, record-breaking expedition, no less, in 2008, coast-to-coast Greenland, east-to-west, uh, full south-north Greenland kite expedition in 2019. And you've also had two scientific firsts during the Explorers Club flag expedition of 2023. So, I mean, first of all, we have to ask you, why do you do this? Why did you dip into the world of exploring in Arctic territory? It was uh, a natural uh, following up to my uh, ice climbing, to my mountaineering, to my expedition mountaineering. And it was getting just too full of people over there. So I started to go to more uh, empty places. And I think the Arctic, when I started, was uh, quite an empty place. So now it's getting a bit more full. It's getting more touristy. But uh, the places where we still go to Greenland, it's empty. So perhaps you have like uh, five or six explorers a year who go onto the ice cap. And uh, over the time, you were able to combine the, the, uh, the, um, the kiting with doing scientific work and especially the this year. You have to explain to us then what kiting actually is. So most people know kiting in the form of kite surfing. So the people who have a small board and get projected over waves using a big sail. Now we do the same by using skis on snow. But we have like, this is like a little bit of a uh, special box because we, we don't do it for fun, but we do it for progression. So we have a pulk behind us with about 100 to 180 kilograms and we pull the pulk on a long distance. So we start at about 1200 and we go up to 2,400 or even in the Antarctic to 3,000, 4,000 kilometers at, in one go. That's quite something. So very, very useful to, to use that uh, in that territory. When you go to these areas, of course, you have to be incredibly well prepared mentally, but also physically. You are a doctor, but you've also done additional courses in order to cope with anything that could happen. So tell us about how you've had to prepare in order to do these expeditions. So uh, I, I stay on a, a quite high fitness level all year round because that's something I really like to do, running, uh, bicycling, doing some CrossFit. But uh, for expeditions, I prepare especially also with technical training like kiting in Norway or kite surfing. And uh, in the last six months, I just upped the training so that uh, you are really in an excellent uh, fitness level when you go to the expedition. But beyond the fitness, I mean, actually, medically, you have to prepare for potential accidents. If anything went wrong, you would know how to fix it because you have done courses, for instance, in uh, rehabilitation, medicine, mountain expedition medicine. What does that entail? So um, the uh, expedition medicine entails um, the old courses I did with uh, a French group in Chamonix, also at the uh, École Nationale d'Alpinisme. And you have to know how to rescue somebody out of expedition settings. And uh, you have to know how to contact, for example, rescue, rescue and search. Um, helicopters or groups and uh, you have to know how for example um, medication works in a in a uh, like uh, ice environment you cannot use any uh, injections because it's frozen so it, it's quite a special medicine you have to do 
How do you do that? Because liquids would be frozen. How do you administer medicine? Uh, for example, in a uh, type of pills or now in the different base camps, you have like um, uh, warm up, uh, you, you warm up the infusions and, and the injections, you keep them warm all the time. We'll come to the mental part, but still sticking with the physical part. What are the hardest things you have endured yourself? Um, for example, that you have to go on kiting after you had like a big fall or uh, after you've been really like pulled over the snow for a uh, hundred meters by your kite because uh, you, you had a fall, you stumbled and uh, you, you cannot stop the kite at a certain moment. So then you're pretty rattled when you stand up. And then when it comes to the mental part, I think anybody, even though I imagine most of our listeners haven't done what you've done. <laughs> uh, you went there particularly to uh, to avoid the masses who are apparently uh, ice climbing and things. Um, what do you have to have in your mind when you're doing this? Because it's day after day after day of, I'm imagining incredible scenery, but monotonous scenery. Monotonous scenery gives you a certain amount of relief because it's calm. You can calm down completely. For me, these places are uh, a place where I can get into flow, where I can really like let my uh, thoughts also go uh, because um, it's um, whatever happens is happening there. And um, it, 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 it's not like here where you have to answer or anything. You are out. I mean, the, all the letters or the emails, they just wait. And they can wait. They still can wait, even if a lot of people think they can't. They can very nicely wait till you're back two months and life is still going on. And I think that's a perfect uh, thing you can bring back from such an expedition. So uh, the other thing is that you have to do a risk management. So you have to know the risks when you go there. But at the moment you're on the ice cap, you cannot think all the time about what could happen because then you will reduce your capacity to do things. So once you like did it, you mentally coped with it, you just have to go. You have to be prepared and then go on the ice cap and just keep it up. And uh, I think it's one of the best and most beautiful experiences I can have mentally. And... Are you doing this alone? Do you do it with support in a group? Uh, especially for Greenland, you need to be in a group. They don't allow any solos. But uh, in the training settings or in my use, I did a lot of solo climbing and also solo trekking and uh, solo uh, man hauling. Yeah. I then want to turn to the Explorers Club because this is quite a special club. I know that it's it's quite elite, in fact, and you have to be a certain type of character to just be admitted into it. Tell us about the Explorers Club. So the Explorers Club is, is a club in New York, which um, has been uh, created in the start of the 19th century. And um, they are mostly known for having uh, little flags that say give onto expeditions and they have the famous firsts, the famous five firsts. So their flag was uh, on the North Pole, on the South Pole, on Everest, on the moon and on the deepest place on Earth. So uh, just being a member of it is uh, already a, a very high accreditation. My godfather was Borger Ausland, who for me is uh, the, the, the biggest and most important Arctic explorer alive. I had the extreme chance to have him as a guide on one of my expeditions when I crossed North Eastland. And so he um, was happy to be my godfather. And then uh, I wanted to also have one of these flags. So uh, I... Um, uh, created the, this expedition with this this year's expedition with the thing in mind to um, be able to do scientific research, and then um, through members of the club, I I found two um, scientific uh, places that would uh, be ready to get uh, these um, measurements, so and they can then publish them later. So at the moment, I cannot give you results as the process of publishing is still going on. But um, so uh, I got this flag, flag number 44, and it's existing since 1931, has been all over the world. And I have the official introduction letter for the flag on my homepage so everybody can uh, read up where the flag has been. And so I took it and I, and I think it's, it's an enormous honour to have that flag with you on that expedition. And with the science experiments, who comes up with the concept of what you're going to research? 
um, you have to see, first of all, what you can do. Because um, the most important is to do the expedition. So we had to kite first. And to do the kiting, you need to get up at a certain time of the day because the winds in Greenland, they are connected to a certain uh, time of the day. And normally in the afternoon, they go down. So you go up normally at about 6, 6.30, eat at 7 and stop between 8 and 8.30. So in the morning, it's pretty difficult to do any research. So I planned it that I did it every evening after my uh, dinner. And then first of all, I... Um, took water that we had been uh, melting. I put it through special ceramic filters and then uh, on that filter were the appropriate uh, microplastics and fibers that are now investigated in the US under the electronic microscope. And then the second was doing snow pits and then like uh, 70 centimeters to a meter deep and then looking at the different uh, layers and then uh, measuring the, um, the cold and uh, the dishta of these different uh, layers by... What's dishta? Dishta. Um, density, exactly, the density. And so uh, we've been uh, measuring the weight of a cylinder and um, th through... Um, um, the weight and the density, they can then calculate um, what, how the snow was treated in that specific place. And from that, they can see the temperatures. And I did that for 31 cams in a straight row of 1300 kilometers. And both measurements have not been done on the ice cap over that distance and over that amount of uh, places. Well, I mean, you're describing certain types of scientific research that requires uh well, I don't know if robots, I mean, robots are usually made of some sort of metal or plastic. So I don't think we have uh, automation, uh, automation that can do this work yet. So it requires a human to do this work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's only a few humans who have the physicality to be able to do this work. So yeah, first of all, you have to be there. Yes. And uh, yeah. And, and, be, and also have the scientific knowledge to know how to conduct experiments. Definitely. Yeah. And so uh, we have to talk about climate change because you've been doing this work for a while now do you see any differences in the arctic you definitely see differences if you are working on the glacier ends uh, on the glacier itself so on the ice cap itself you don't see changes because it's just snow snow everywhere you look at so realistically there you, you don't see it, you don't measure it, but you can see it on the two edges where you go on and off the glacier, where you have like uh, disturbances that were not there, for example, like 20 years ago. Yeah. And also, when you're away for one, two months, you go into a completely different state, as you mentioned, the state of flow for you. Then you have to come back to a place like Luxembourg and you have to reintegrate mentally as well. How do you do that? Let's say the first uh, few weeks, I I'm still in this happy state. Oh, and uh, so life here is not happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be perhaps uh, a bit harsh to say. So. Well, I'm only saying the opposite of what you said. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy life. I think, uh, as I said in my TEDx talk, uh, I don't think that life as we have it at the moment is uh, easy. It's, uh, it, it's quite tough at moments. And uh, um, I think that um, we should have more care and respect for each other, as I said in my talk, and uh, people should help more. I, I think that we, we don't have the best possible uh, interaction in, in this country at the moment. Well, let's just expand on that. You did do a TEDx talk here in Luxembourg City uh, last year and I was there and I saw it. But for those who haven't seen it, tell us about your, your, your bullet point thoughts. My bullet point thoughts are that the, it's, uh, you, you, the mobbing uh, that I experienced was, uh, was pretty harsh. And, uh, but you have to explain to us where that came from and when in your life for those who, who don't know. Oh, it's it's uh, it's about medicine, as I'm a doctor, and um, 
So uh, I I'm using my uh, experiences uh, as as physically and and uh, psychologically out of my uh, my big expeditions to compensate for that and to get my my strengths. And uh, I said that um, doing expeditions, doing mountaineering, being outside, first of all, gives you strength, gives you. Uh, new ideas gives you flow and also opens up if you look at, at the different uh, philosophical standpoint uh, a limit some you're you're going out of normal limits because you you see what you can do and you have the appropriate people who care and respect for you while in in your normal setting where you work this is not the case and um, I unfortunately miss in this country that on a, on a big open stage, people help each other and that these people who do the mobbing are um, getting judged. They are just protected. And I think that's a very, very um, sad thing. So you have experienced mobbing? Definitely, yes. And why? That's a very difficult question, but uh, mostly because... Um, if you uh, are like outstanding, if you have your own ideas, if you are very strong, if you have flow, a lot of people um, do not like that because they just um, they um, they try to compete you. Competition. Competition, yeah. And so you're talking about this happening in your workplace. Yes. How do you? talk about that within the workplace to HR, for instance, or... Oh, they don't answer. So how could you change that, apart from going outside and helping yourself with the Arctic expeditions, how could you help somebody else in your position with this state in the workplace here? Um, I think it's uh, swept under the carpet. So I only can say that you, you have to keep your strengths and just be have an extreme endurance, an extreme mental strength, an extreme mindset and continue for yourself. But you're a doctor. I am, yes. And mentally, not everybody will be as strong as you are mentally. Yes, and I think that's why I recommend to people to uh, to build up their mental strength and get help. But I know that getting help is extremely difficult. But you're also a leader in your profession and therefore you have a vo I mean, you're here, you have a voice to be able to affect change. So if you could affect change and you talk about this community spirit of people helping one another, being more collaborative, how could you, what would you like to change to make it a better work environment? Oh, that uh, we uh, just transparency, that people uh, have to be accountable for what they do and that they have to go public about certain things instead of sweeping things under the carpet. That sounds like you're talking about some medical errors. No, not about medical errors, no. Okay. It sounds like we can't go further. Or no, I, I, cannot, I, I, I cannot give <laughs> any names now. That's, well, of course, uh, I'm, not that's, for, that's, uh, I'm, I'm not asking for names at all. I'm asking for how can it be fixed to make a better work environment? How, what can, apart from transparency, what else could make one or make a community of more collaboration? What is wrong then in the society to make it such? Um, perhaps that uh, we we don't. Uh, it, it's just too much competition. It's just uh, we we don't want to re realize like a dream together. Everybody is just any uh, everybody's enemy. Competition for what though? Money. But in a medical profession, the money is set. No. Unless you have a private practice and then you you do your own work. But isn't it for the benefit of the patient ultimately? Oh, yeah, normally medicine is for the benefit of the patient, sure. But uh, if uh, you are like uh, shooting off somebody else, they, uh, the cake is the same. But if there are less people, the cake for these people will be more. OK, that sounds like a very, very difficult situation and a very sad situation as well. And it's not the Christmas message. I Unfortunately, like. <laughs> no. I mean, uh, about, I can give you a great Christmas message about Please exploration yes. and about the flow. And it's beautiful out there. And I think that we have absolutely to keep our world and we have to uh, keep it safe and we have to uh, act for 
the Arctic and the Antarctic and wildlife and plant life. But uh, I think that's that's a positive message. But uh, I think life as it is at the moment and as uh, I experience it and a lot of my patients and also a lot of my friends experience it, I would consider it as being quite difficult. I'm so sorry. That's no problem. I'm so sorry to, to hear you say that. And I really hope uh, by talking about these things, we can begin to open up the conversation and transparency, as you say, to open up the conversation and to 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 listen to one another's voices, because I think through conversation we can we can affect change in a gentle manner, and that that would be my Christmas wish, at least, <laughs> anyhow. And I also think, as my mother always said, there's room for everybody in the world, more or less. So everybody, and also, you know, one person can't do everything by themselves. We we need to to work together. That's always been my philosophy, anyway. Well, I know you're going to stay with us for the rest of the conversation. So, Patrick, thank you so much for your honesty and for your insights and for doing things that uh, I don't think I'll ever be able to do. But thank you. Oh, you're welcome to come with me. I'll I'll take you there. It's no problem. (laughs) I just need to do a few years training. (laughs) Acclimatise myself to the... the, What's the lowest temperature you experience? Uh, That was like uh, minus 38 and a wind chill of minus 45. I'm just thinking of practicalities here, you know, going to the toilet and things. <laughs> I know you have to be very careful and you have to carry things with you, don't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I remember listening to the wonderful Rory Stewart. Uh, he's done a, 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 such like expeditions and he mentions this as well. So it's, it's, it's uh, very different to Luxembourg. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, turning to you, Connie, uh, we're going to turn to something completely different. We're going to turn... Yes, we're going to turn to the tropics now. Yes. So, Fondation Folleroux Luxembourg, Dr. Connie Reichling, you actually have been the director of uh, Fondation Folleroux Luxembourg since 2016. Your degree, in fact, is in arts and archaeology and a doctorate in history from the University of Luxembourg and Paleolithic archaeology from Brussels, the the Free University in Brussels. And apart from all of this, I have to add that you are an amazing baker and you you could open up a patisserie tomorrow if you wished. It's just amazing. Now, I would like you to tell, I've had the wonderful opportunity to go on a couple of the missions to Togo and Benin a few years ago. Um, but please tell our audience, what is Fondation Folleroux Luxembourg? Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, we indeed had uh, the opportunity to go on a mission together. Uh, so Fondation Folleroux uh, Luxembourg is actually an NGO, so a non-governmental uh, organization, um, which works, so we work in Africa. We work in uh, West African countries and we work in Central African countries um, to help improve the healthcare system and the education system because in many of these countries there are lack of means uh, and people have many many very good ideas but uh, the means are missing so we try to give a little kick off uh, to to help and lift them up and uh, Fondation Foro was um, where we actually celebrated our anniversary uh, on the 7th of December uh, which was the 57th uh, so Fondation Folleroux was uh, founded in 1966 uh, by friends that heard Raoul Folleroux talk, which was a French journalist and humanitarian uh, at the time. And uh, they wanted to help him uh, accomplish his work, which was fight leprosy. So it's a um, debilitating uh, disease uh, which attacks the nerves and uh, the nervous system in general and um, which has a huge impact on society um, as also in Luxembourg in the medieval times, but um, mostly now still in countries that have low income. In fact, I don't know if all of our listeners, and this is no disrespect to them, I don't know if people realise leprosy still exists in the world. Because for us, it's not around us at all anymore. But it does exist. It still exists and it exists mostly in uh, societies that are very um, isolated. Uh, So it mostly touches villages in uh, very, very poor countries. So we we call them low-income countries to not say any more developing countries because it's not what they are. And uh, and the villages are very, um, since they're very isolated, uh, people mitigate. So they mingle and they, they stay together. And then uh, since the incubation time is very, very long, so it can go from up to a few months to 20 years uh, to show the first symptoms, then when now when there's a first patient that is declared, then there's an actual panic because people say, ah, I might have contracted it as well. And then the whole village is uh, going into 
urgency, emergency mode um, and they will be treated because we know we know how to treat it. Uh, it's a very simple treatment. It's antibiotics, actually. And uh, the most difficult part would be to uh, get the person that is impacted, which comes from a country where education is not like here, where everyone goes to school, has to has to go to school. Um, so they are not uh, the, the the literacy uh, level is not very very high, and people can't read the packages, the notice of the um, of the antibiotics. So they usually don't respect the delays that they have to take the antibiotics. At so we know that when you have to take that treatment, you have to take it at a specific time in, in on the day um, during a certain period, and you have to respect that to the. I would say to the minute, but it's to the hour. And um, that's a bit di more difficult because time is relative. So you don't have, you know, <laughs> time is like, <laughs> it's in 15 minutes. <laughs> so it's a bit, it's more uh, fluid. It's more fluid. And it's very good like that, but it's not meant uh, for treatments that are actually conceived for European or Western cultures where time is of essence and it has to be like that. Uh, so that's the most difficult part. And uh, there we have um, people on site. So we work with um, African uh, organizations. We don't go, we don't have experts uh, on site and they work with um, agents on the field. So they come from the communities and they know their people, they know the language and they can talk to them. And then they will follow up and they will say, okay, today you have to take your medicine and then you will be better. So that's a and huge improvement. Much easier to build that link of trust. Yeah, yeah, indeed. If, if we come, we are different. Even if they like us, even if we like them, it's we are different. We are yeah. white. We come from the north. We bring certain things, but we are not a trustee. We are not the, the one that is trusted in the, in the community. So they will welcome you, like you saw. And they mm. will welcome you with open arms, with music, with whatever. But when it comes to the essential, it has to be, it has to stay in the community. Mm -hmm. And there we have to work like that and it works so yeah and also you really i mean since leprosy that's not the only thing now you've you've moved into so many other pillars of work one of them being uh, mother and child healthcare exactly. really from pregnancy upwards so talk to us about this yeah. work so we uh, evolved with time so we went also we went from simply giving money to the ones that needed it to building up projects so now we're talking uh, we went from charity to cooperation now we're talking international solidarity so it goes very far and it's interconnected and and everything so everyone is linked and um and i just want to underline that because yeah. that's such an interesting move goes from charity where people are tithing to use that uh, yeah. Christian old-fashioned word. It's not a bad thing. I don't, I don't yeah. want to say that charity is a bad thing. It's just, it's unilateral. So you give and the other one receives, but there's no communication uh, necessarily between the people. And then cooperation aid, development aid, is the part where you integrate uh, communities. So you go talk to them, you ask what is needed, which is very important because you can go, you can say, I build a school in whatever, in Togo. If the school is not needed, it will not be used. So it doesn't. It's resources that are wasted. So development aid cooperation is the part where you actively talk and see what the needs are and work with the other authorities as well and the other NGOs because we are not the only one, thankfully. <laughs> and then the, the new way of thinking, let's say, or the new tendency is to say that it's international solidarity more than cooperation because it's not just two parties it's the whole world that is connected so mm -hmm. it's, it's that part that becomes more important and where the it also came with the agenda 2030 uh, maybe you're familiar with that one with the uh, development goals uh, the SDGs uh, that was the, the the kicking point actually for, for the international solidarity and where you should um, actually see the world as an ecosystem so yeah. everything is connected. People are connected. Uh, nature is connected. Everything you do here can have an impact in the south and the other way around. So that's uh, that's the part that becomes very interesting, because we are not the ones giving. No, we give. We have to. We have to give. We give some means, but uh, there's something coming back. So it's um, it's a real partnership actually that you build up. It's based on trust. <laughs> and you have to do, um, and it's longer in time also. So we have partners that, uh, partner associations we work with uh, since 20 years, for instance, on different projects, on different communities, because they also move around a bit, but it's a, it's a trust relationship. And then you can do something and you see the impact. I mean, one example is, is the incredible example I saw, which is that you built a maternity hospital <laughs> yeah. on stilts in water because the communities... <laughs> 
that needed to be served of pregnant women mm-hmm. and those very, very precious and dangerous early stages through pregnancy into the early years of a child's life, um, they were served by waterways, yes. not by roads at no. all. And so this is this is really a beautiful yeah, example. Yeah, that was a challenge. <laughs> it was it was a quite it was quite a challenge, um, a logistics challenge, not not really to bring uh, the aid because uh, we were talking to our partner on, on site, Kadi, and his team, and uh, he said, okay, we have uh, identified a new um, new population that actually asks for help because they said you built one maternity in the other village why we can't have one and, uh, and he said okay the difficulty is <laughs> it's on water so they live around the lake it's um, it's uh, villages all around the lake and all the activity all the economic activity the daily ba- daily life is on the lake so they they really they have boats they do their fishing uh, cultivating uh, plants harvesting uh, it's, everything is on the lake so the the thing was, nobody would take the time to, when they are sick, because people go to the doctors not to prevent um, disease, they will go when they are really, really sick, because you have to pay. And most of them don't have the money to pay a doctor that maybe will also not show up, because that's also one of the difficulties. So they will not take um, take it upon them to leave their family, especially the moms, because they run the daily business. If they leave, then the whole family is a bit abandoned so they will not go away and uh, take a road that they don't know to go to the next doctor that might be there and have a um, I don't know uh, have to walk for five hours uh, over a piste mm-hmm. like we say like that, not real roads mm-hmm. <laughs> so they won't do that and um, so we said okay then the solution would be to bring the healthcare to them but to bring the healthcare to them, it was to build on the lake. Mm-hmm. So we built a maternity and um, a dispensaire. Uh, it's called it's a like pharmacy. a pharmacy. Yeah, like a, like a small pharmacy where it's not all, it's focused on women and mm-hmm. pregnancy, but it's also open for men and uh, and children, of course, because the family in a, as a whole is uh, considered a small health center. Exactly. Yeah, yeah uh, on stilts. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so we built that one. That um, and the building was quite a challenge with the entrepreneur because uh, there was a lot of calculation to be done. We, it was unknown. We never did it. They never did it. And um, we had to um, improvise a bit in yeah. the, <laughs> on the way. But it's there. And it works, uh, and uh, people go there. So they will uh, use it. Uh, the children get vaccines uh, when they need. Uh, they get healthcare when they need. Uh, the women go to uh, give birth on the um, in the maternity ward. So that's a huge success for us. And even the villages around that are not around the lake that are behind the maternity, they will also come. Yeah. <laughs> so that's also also very nice. And it became like uh, last time I talked to uh, Kadi, which is the director on site. He said that it became a um, reference hospital for um, international visits. So uh, you have people coming from Luxembourg that do that are in the healthcare um, business or in the healthcare sector. They will go visit the maternity and the healthcare center in um, in Lokpoji. So that's um, that's a nice one. And another lovely example is where you had the physiotherapy unit mm-hmm. and the school built next to a hospital. I can't remember yeah. whether that was Benin or Togo. It's in Alada. Yes. Yeah. And um, and one thing I will never forget is that food is not provided in hospitals. So this is another burden yeah. on the mothers. Exactly. Because it is the mothers who bring the food, actually. Yeah. And so they have to sometimes spend months with their child in a hospital away from their family and that's a different struggle. Yes, that's uh, that's the part where we talk about survival. So the family is dependent on the women to cook. It can be, the, it's usually it's the mom. Um, sometimes it can also be the eldest daughter or the auntie that comes to help because the family is not nuclear family. It's the, it's the whole family. So it's all the aunties, all the uncles that can pitch in. And Benin is very... Um, women-based society. So men have their part to uh, to say they're equal partners, but women run the businesses and, and the family life. So uh, when a child gets sick, the mom has to come with that child to the hospital if the hospitalization for, for example, we have uh, Buruli Ulcer, which is um, like the little sister of leprosy. So uh, it's the same... Um, mm bacteria and uh, it affects mostly children because it probably comes from um, from water origin so they play in the water they have uh, wounds it gets infected and then it's it a starts. terrible ulcer it's very very bad and yes. it's something that we here in this country we do not know about this at all no. 
because we have um, access to proper hygiene. And that doesn't mean that they don't have hygiene. It means that they don't have access to soap. They don't have access to clean water. That's a different kind. So even if you wash yourself, you go wash yourself in the river, it's not a very good idea. So there's too much, uh, too many parasites, too many bacteria. And then they contract it. And then it's the same as uh, leprosy. It doesn't have that long incubation time, but it has some incubation time. And then often people don't go because they say, oh, it's a little wound. It's going to go away. And it doesn't. And then when it's really bad, then they seek help. And then we have a hospital uh, where we have um, surgeons, actually, that uh, can treat. They're specialized in uh, tropical diseases. So they can treat uh, the children. They can do skin grafts and all that and all the treatment that goes with it. But they have to be hospitalized because you have to change the, um, the bandages. Mm -hmm. You have to care for the wounds. And that can be up to three months. So we have um, a school next to that because then the children can go to school. They don't have to be out of school too long. But the moms still have to be there to cook. And in that time, the, the family at home stays behind and they have to care for themselves. So that is okay if your children are bigger and they can. But if they're smaller, then you have to find a way to do it. And usually parents then don't opt for the hospital. So they will keep that child at home instead of going to treat it because they can't leave the others alone. And, uh, and there we also have um, two, um, two people in the hospital that actually care for those that can't have their family with them. Um, but it's exceptional. So we can't have one person dedicated to one child either. It's not, we don't have the means for that and we don't have the resources for that either. So it's kind of a struggle and a balance to have uh, in, in the families in, uh, in Benin and in Togo as well. It's the same. Uh, same I'm problem. so glad you're telling this story because it's such a juxtaposition to the situation Patrick described to us <laughs> in the hospitals here. <laughs> the choices that women have to make, yeah. and it's women making these choices, are so, so, they are life and death choices. Yeah. This is what they're doing. I mean, they're trying to balance a young family versus a child with an open ulcer on their arm. That's going to not exactly. get better. But then I want to ask you, maybe coming back to the mindset that Patrick alluded to, <laughs> How do you get people to care here about the work you do there? Mm. Yeah, that's the, that's the question that we also raised yes. a lot uh, when we were um, when we had the chance to go yeah. together. Um, actually, it's also part of that international solidarity. So you have the part where it's part of empathy. So p humans are empaths people so they usually most they should of care them. most it of them. It seems like Patrick's surrounded You can you can also be just focus towards you so but yes. you still care about something or somebody that's true and uh, our our work here or part of our work here we have a team of eight people uh, Fondation Folloro Luxembourg uh, is to try to get people to care even for others that are very very far away because we talk about 5,000, 6,000 kilometers. It's not as far as you, <laughs> but it's uh, it's still far, far away. And everyone is struggling with, with their own problems. So especially after um, COVID, people are very self-centered, which is normal because you have your own struggle, your own problems, and they are not less important than everybody else's because it's also, you have to put it into perspective every time. And the international solidarity wakes up or is supposed to wake up that conscience about interconnectedness. So um, what we also do is we go to schools, we go, uh, we go do have public events in Luxembourg where we talk about that part. So we say the whole world is connected. What you do here has an impact on a factory in Bangladesh, on a, on a cotton field in Benin, whatever. So you, you make conscious choices, you try to make conscious choices and they have an impact on other people. And those other people are not there waiting for you to come to help. They want to do that by themselves and they are usually able to do it because they have really, really good ideas. But there's no, Means. let's say, let's, no, yeah, no structure around uh, to, to make it function. There's no government that is really healthy, even if they are emerging uh, and, and doing a lot of things since a few years. There's a lot of stuff that is happening, especially in Benin. They are very, they're called stable <laughs> as, a, as a government. So they're, they're doing a lot of stuff, but the means always are missing and the means usually is money. It's not resources, it's not people, it's the money because all those countries where we are working in, we are in eight different countries in, in Africa, they are heavily uh, dependent on export-import. So everything they produce will go outside and they have to import everything that they need. 
which is not a very good model, but it's the model of the globalization and it's just like that. So you have to work around it and with it. And, um, and so to get people to care, maybe is building on reciprocity because you give something, yes, and usually it's, it's money because if you give clothes or whatever, it has to be very targeted. You can't just give clothes and then afterwards you have a ton of clothes and you don't know what to do with those. But if you give the money, then it can go into a project and then we are responsible handling that money by using just a very, very small portion uh, for the functioning of the FFL here in Luxembourg because we are paid uh, to do our work. We also get help from the government for that. So we reduce that part uh, a lot. And then 90% of your donation will go to the countries where you want to have it. So you can choose. You can say, I want it in Lukpoji, for instance. Mm -hmm. It will go there. And then we can do the projects together and then we can build new things. And then you have the reciprocity because you can see and that's our job as well is to bring back uh, witness uh, testimonies or witnessing uh, videos or whatever from the people on site, which are real people. Yeah. <laughs> and they will have a message as well for those that have. They know that there are people in Luxembourg that want to help. Mm. And then they will also want to communicate. So you have the reciprocity that goes with it. And I think that's quite let's say, rewarding uh, in a way, but it's also something that is human. You, you need that. A human needs to have that interaction. And I think that we can also have that with people that are far away. You don't have to be like this close to, <laughs> to be interacting and have that reciprocity, but you can also have it with people that you maybe don't know yet. Well, I think that's an evidence right now with the war going yeah, on. Well, exactly. a couple of wars going on, but uh, um, for instance... Um, the Gaza war right now, I think, yep. it has, has elicited a lot of conversation and people really feel for so many people on both sides there. They feel for the humanity yep. of the situation. Exactly, for the people. Actually. Yes, for the people. And like you said, it's it's one world solidarity mm. is what we should be focusing on. I think that is an excellent Christmas <laughs> message. <laughs> and right after this break, Connie, thank you so much. Uh, oh, I must say, of course, for a Christmas present, you can go on to uh, Fondation Folgeau Luxembourg a website and you have really a wonderful website because like you said, you can place the money in a targeted fashion and choose. And I think that's a wonderful gift for people in Luxembourg who have, most of us here have anything we need. Yep. We're very, very lucky here. Um, and, and we have a great, great government and we have good health care. So we are incredibly lucky here. We may have wants, but we don't have needs, I think, mm -hmm. in general. Um, we're very lucky. So so that would be a lovely Christmas Yes, that, that you can do. And even on the logical, logistical side, you will also get a small certificate for the person that you actually give. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's so. A, there's still <laughs> time. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank you, Connie. Well. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. And now we're changing topics once more and we're going to talk about science comics. Uh, uh, with me I have Professor Dr. Serge Han and Andy Jenen. Serge Han is a Professor of Biological Chemistry in the Department of Life Sciences at the University of Luxembourg. And uh, your research focuses on molecular disease mechanisms associated with the development and metatastases of colon cancer. How do cancer cells develop resistance to treatment? How do they interact with their microenvironment? I think we'll have to have you back to talk about this one day because it's a, close to my heart. But you're here because you care passionately about science communication, in fact. And also with you, we have Andy Jenin, who is, uh, well, you're a, a comic artist, an illustrator, and you've spent your whole life. I love what you're wearing. Uh, it's, a, it's a little boy's dream, the Spider-Man top. You studied at Institut Saint-Luc in Brussels. You studied creating comics. I mean, it really sounds like a dream job. <laughs> My sister had her little boys over at the weekend just visiting me and she told me that she buys them plain comic books for them to draw their own comics as, uh, as something to do. But um, but yeah, so you and Serge, you've worked together to develop Luxplorations, a universe of research, which is a series of science comics published by the University of Luxembourg. Uh, so Serge, tell us what this is. What is this concept? Okay, the concept is twofold, actually. So first of all, it's a training concept for doctoral candidates all over Luxembourg. So they do not only come from the University of Luxembourg, but they are located in different research institutes. So you actually get the grasp of what is done in the entire country if you read the comics. 
And um, so it's, uh, first of all, a training measure for, for some of our doctoral candidates who are interested in developing uh, such a story in learning about science communication. And secondly, of course, we have a target audience that uh, is uh, anyone who is interested in what is done here uh, concerning research. So um, our main target uh, audiences may be, uh, may be uh, high school pupils, but anyone who is interested in what is done here in Luxembourg in terms of research can have a look and discover what uh, our young researchers are, are, are studying. And how did you two find each other? <laughs> Was it the comic festival in Contern many years ago? Serge <laughs> was coming to um, uh, talk to Luxembourgish comic book artists because they were working on those uh, science comics and they wanted to do it with Luxembourgish local artists. And so uh, I was very pleased, but often people come to you and they talk about the project and then afterwards, or you don't hear from them anymore or the project doesn't get done. But here, one year later, they came back to us and so um, we could do the project then. And you've been working in comics. I mean, it's obviously a passion to you. I mean, all your life. You, like people say, I never worked my whole life because... You, you do something you, you, you love so much. Tell us why comic, that medium of, of telling a story through comic, uh, is valuable and can work. First of all, it's fun. <laughs> it's like, I would say it's like when I was a kid, I played with my action figures, I did my little stories. But especially in things like the science comics or deductional, ped pedagogical mm -hmm. comics in general, it's um, you can learn something from it. So it's um, I love it to put something into my comics that people can uh, learn mm -hmm. about a subject which is also good for me because I have to learn it too so yeah. each project I have to <laughs> you have to, to ask the questions yeah I have to understand the matter so that I can do a story about it yeah so um, I think it's a very good medium for that because it breaks down things into the most general parts so that uh, people get a grasp of what's really important about a matter if the comic is well done. So, And that also means that all of the researchers are having to tell their story to you in the first place exactly, and yeah, your yeah. team. How does that function? Actually, so? it's in the second place because um, the doctoral candidates who team up to work on a story are very often from different fields even. So the first, there's a triple communication challenge involved. So first of all, they have to develop together, kind of interdisciplinary, it depends on the team that is formed, together an idea of what they want to communicate where they both can both of three people can contribute and then they have to convey that idea to the comic artists of course also not experts on every field and um, so that's a, that's a, that's a second communication challenge and you have to keep in mind your final target audience of course um, and there of course the comic artists are also um, able to help a lot in, in trying to address and in, incite interest from the target audience. And tell us about, I know you've done, I think it's three Luxplorations now, is it? Or four? Three or four? So three at the moment. Yeah. Tell us some of the topics you've covered in these. Uh, I've done two stories. One was about um, solar cell, how a solar cell works in the inside. And the other one was about, I have to help me out, micro... Microglia. So yeah. it was about the immune system. <laughs> because I always, I always write the, the words, but I never speak them out so that I don't know how to pronounce it. So Yeah, yeah. And so did you learn when you were doing these? Yeah, but not how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you visualize these things? When you've got the, the scientists coming along to you and telling you the story, how do you then put that into, as you used in the first instance, a fun story? What was very surprising for me is that they were very well trained before already because there's uh, Vero Mischitz, a German uh, artist who is specialized in um, science comics who already worked with the PhD students before. So when they came to us, they already had really good scripts because it's not easy to do a comic script when you have never done it because it's you can tell only very, very few things in two or four pages. So people tend to want to tell too much. Even I've worked with uh, writers that wrote a lot of novels. They, they don't really know how to write, but they didn't know how to write a comic script. And um, the scripts I got, they were almost perfect already to, to... When I read the script, I already have 
images in mind, like when I heard about the stills uh, with the houses or the. I think you need to work with yeah, <laughs> people getting pulled by kites through the snow. It's, it's, I already have images in my head with everything. And here I read the script and I know, knew how to, to approach it. Well, this so. is really interesting. What I'm, I'm loving about uh, your mind is, I, I mean, thinking about Patrick as well, you, you want to empty your mind when you go off to the Arctic. You have a full mind full of pictures all the time. But it's the same thing about, it's not the same scale, but when I work on a, on a big comic project, like a, a whole book, I work on it like a six months or a year. And it's the same thing when I'm in it and I'm like in the zone. I forget everything about me around me and I just put on my, my headphones, I listen to music and from the morning until the night I'm in my world and I travel with my characters and everything. It's You have really found the best job for you. I, of course. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a rarity. That's such a great skill. Were your parents worried? I mean, I didn't think I would be asking you this question, but were your parents worried when you went off to study comics? <laughs> a bit because of the financial security. But they supported me from, from the beginning. They always told me, you can do it, but afterwards, don't come cry when it doesn't work. Okay, that was the very... <laughs> and so for you, Serge, you're coming from the science communication part. You care deeply about it. Why is it so important to you, this science communication in various streams? Okay, so it's, it's a huge topic that you can discuss for hours, of course. But I think if you want to break it down, um, the, the main goal is to, to create trust in science to provide information and facts so that people can take informed decisions. And people means various groups in society, individuals, politicians, um, doctors rely on, on, on research that is done to take decisions, associations need it. And so we need to take informed decisions. And um, that's where science and research comes into play because it, it provides a lot, not all, answers but a lot of the, the information that we need to 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 decide and um it uh, science communication in principle allows to create interfaces between science and society where dialogue can happen and information exchange can happen and, and then why did you think comics would be a good way forward it is one of the means so we have we we, we are training so the program that we that we um, established to train young scientists entails more than just the comics we we provide in uh, internships we give uh, formal courses in science communication and the comics are one one additional measure that we use just to try and uh, and explore the different the different media that you can use and comics tend to be able to also sometimes reach different audiences that we cannot target with the normal uh, text narratives, for example, uh, that you could you could have a very nicely written text, uh, totally understandable, but it doesn't reach uh, a s certain people because they're more visually oriented. They, they want to have a fun aspect with it. And so that's why we explored um, that road. And it also has a tendency to actually um, motivate and engage more people who are from a more challenging socioeconomic background. Apparently, there were studies uh, studying this, you uh, enable, um, you, you engage people more with uh, who are not that much interested in science if you do it by the means of a different medium such as comics. So they, they have proven to be of, of value there. I, I, I yeah, I ahead. think it's because it's a graphic medium. So you have um, pictures that pull the people in, even if they don't care about the subject, they get interested, they read it. And everything you cannot convey with images, you use the text. So you only use the text to, to convey the main informations. So it sticks more with you than if you read the whole text, which can be boring at the moment. Here have the picture, the text and everything place together and also when you read a comic you have to be somehow more active than we read just the text because you have to make the connection between the different pictures and so i think you um, learn more easily it sticks more in your in your mind and it's non-threatening it reminds mm -hmm. me in fact about what connie was saying about the medication packets and i know actually in, in yeah. africa you use symbols pictograms yes mm. Mm. yes to, to explain what to do i remember this and yeah. seeing them Yes, I, f I find that if I may pitch in, I find it very interesting because I also know my husband usually says he can't figure, I can't imagine things when he reads. So he, he doesn't know, he just reads the text. And I'm very 
vivid in my imagination we usually. say he works in computer science. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he has, he has that, he always had that. So he can't imagine things. He doesn't dream, for instance. That's, it's very particular. And uh, it's it's a known condition as well. It's not a disease, but it's yeah. uh, it's it's something where he, I think he would be more interested in um, in visualizing uh, things that he may not know. So computer science is fine, but <laughs> maybe uh, some some biological interaction or whatever may be mm-hmm. more interesting to see it in order to understand it. That's. Uh, you know, we also had co- uh, topics all about computer science, mm-hmm. so cryptology, for example. Yeah, we had it inside, and you've covered a lot of topics already. In fact, I've seen that. I mean, one thing I'm thinking about when I think of visual media: what about video games? What about the videos online, the TikToks, the social media, various, all sorts of video options are available out there. Um, Do you do that as well? Or what is the difference between a video format, a video game format and a comic? You want to start? (laughs) Well, to me, it's, as I said before already, it's more interactive than just watching a movie because you watch a movie and your, your mind can drift off. But when you read a comic, you have to be careful you read picture after picture, you have to make the connection between the pictures. That's where our work comes in. It's like the invisible the invisible work that people don't see. It's our most of our work, how to tell the story. How many pictures you use, what do you show, what do you leave out, so that people can still uh, follow your story, because they have to fill in the blanks. So that's for me a huge uh, difference. And also the, the workload. So to do a video game, you have to have much more people... It's much more money-consuming, time-consuming. Uh, but you're making people work effectively between those gaps. That's a very interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you're making people work in the gaps. And how do you think about that? How do you plan it out? That's that's a craft. <laughs> you, that's, <laughs> that's why you went to university to yeah, study. Yeah, really, <laughs> because we didn't draw that much. Uh, we didn't have that much drawing classes. It's more about storytelling, how to create characters, like uh, the f- psychological skill... Um, side of characters and how to tell a story what do you need to do that people actually can follow what you want to tell and so you have to on one hand go as universal as possible but on the other hand nowadays it's very difficult because if you go too universal you tend to go too much to stereotypes or cliches so how to show something it gets more the more and more uh, difficult for Mm -hmm. us nowadays because if i want to draw a librarian Back in the days, I did a, a woman with the attached hair and the glasses and everything. It's a librarian. Nowadays, it's offensive. It's So you have to find other ways to make it understand at first sight what you want to, to show, but without showing it in a cliche, stereotypical yeah. way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I believe you're looking for feedback and there are some prizes on offer. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So uh, we are, all, we are of course, looking for feedback because we, um, of course, these, these, uh, uh, this project is, is sponsored and I should maybe also mention that uh, we're sponsoring it. So we, it's, uh, the project is, is supported by, by the FNR, by the Luxembourg National Research Fund, um, but also by the University of Luxembourg, by the Faculty of Science, Technology and Medicine. And um, we... Um, we are, of course, also um, in in the need of of showing that the product is is valuable, and we have we have uh, the feedback that we get is is quite good. But of course, we always would like to have a little bit more feedback, and um, that's why on on our homepage, where you can also uh, download the comics for free in five different languages, and the homepage is is uh, sciencecomics.uni.lu. There you also have a link to the feedback and currently until the 15th of January 24 we have um, the feedback is open and people who have submitted feedback until then can win a number of small prizes. One is a portrait drawn by Andy. Oh la la, <laughs> uh, great. And we also have entry tickets, for example, to the Luxembourg Science Centre and um, a comic book. Um, so there are some prizes that you can win if you give us feedback on our on our comics. It will help us to 
to make the product better. Well, there we go. Well, I feel like it's been a very full hour of conversation. We've gone from Arctic exploration to the tropics, where you can also donate to help the cooperation for the global solidarity of our world, to logging on to having your own comic profile drawn by Andy here and a read-up about various science topics as well for fun, making that invisible link in your own storytelling. Thank you to all of my guests. Thank you so much. I wish you all a, a very happy, mellow, safe Christmas. And to all of our viewers and listeners, I truly wish you a very peaceful Christmas time as well. And we'll be back in the new year, of course, with much more conversation. You can always get in touch with us at Day Radio, at RTL Today. Various social media sites are available. You will find us. Uh, it's, it's not a difficult thing to do. And with that, we wish you such a lovely end to 2023. Thank you for listening. The Lisa Burke Show.